Okay, welcome to what is Bezas Hashem going to be the class in which we finished the 53 chapters of volume 1 of Tanya. So we are now at the last section of chapters 51, 52, 53 and we are tying things together. We're sort of coming to a close and we are going to go back to a theme that was introduced earlier and we're going to develop it a little bit more. And the theme that we're going to go back to is the metaphor that was introduced in chapter 35. Do you remember the focus of chapter 35 and 36 and 37? Doing mitzvahs, right? Action. The importance of action. And the importance of action was introduced with a metaphor, a metaphor which is from the Zohar of the wick, the oil, and the flame. The wick is the body. The oil, the fuel which the wick burns, are the mitzvahs. And the flame is the godly light, the presence of the Shekhinah that each person generates by doing mitzvahs. We're going to go back to that metaphor and develop it more, and then we're going to conclude. And it's not surprising in a book called Sefer Shal Beninim, a book of the intermediate, after we've defined the intermediate as the person who focuses on behavioral perfection, that we're going to go back now to the theme of action to the theme of behavior. Especially after you think about the fact that the past 10 chapters we were doing emotions. Remember, 40, 41 through 50, we were elaborating on all the different types of awe and love that we could generate through meditation. So we were getting really heavy into the emotional realm. But at the end of the day, remember that the Benini, although the Benini surely develops his or her awe and love for Hashem, Ultimately, where the Bainini excels and achieves perfection is in the area of behavior. So we're going back to this theme, the theme of behavior and the power of behavior. Okay, chapter 51. Chapter 51 begins and says, let's reintroduce the theme of the wick, the oil, and the flame, the metaphor from chapter 35. Chapter 51 then says, let's ask a question. What does it mean when we say that the Shekhinah, that God's presence, dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the Kedush Gadoshim, in the Temple, when after all we know, like the Prophet says, like it says in, uh, in Isaiah, that the whole world is full of His glory. Or like it says in the Zohar, there is no place devoid of Him. So if God is omnipresent, what does it mean that the godly presence was revealed in the Holy of Holies? Seems like somewhat of a contradiction. So we answer this question in chapter 51 by likening it to a, a metaphor of anthropomorphism. We say mid... Sorry, it goes off and on. Who's never on? Who's never on? Okay. Free charge. Basically, went off after standby. I mean, I saw the I saw the picture before we. Did you say record? I don't know if it said record. Standby. Never said record. So it says record now. Yeah. Yeah. It's recording. Yeah. Okay. It's recording now. What? Yeah, Aaron has to watch it. Thank you. It's recording now. Okay. So you understand nothing recorded so far. Okay. Right. Okay, let's pretend that we're starting now. We're going to go even faster. You know, every time you do it, it gets smoother. Okay. Take three. Take three? All right. Okay, welcome. We are going to Abbas Hashem. Finish 
the 53 chapters of Tanya today. We were on the last three chapters. Now, remember, we just spent the last 10 chapters speaking about feelings, awe, and love. And Tanya is a book for the intermediate, the Benini, who focuses on behavioral perfection. So as our parting shot, we're going to return to the theme of behavior. And we are going to look back at a metaphor that was introduced earlier in Tanya and develop it more fully. If you remember, chapters 35, 36, and 37 were focused on the power of action and its transformative effect on the world. And those chapters were introduced with a metaphor, a metaphor from the Zohar, the metaphor that a man is like, a man or a woman, person, Jewish person, is like an, uh, a wick, an oil, wick, oil, and flame. That the wick is the body, the oil is the fuel that the body burns to generate the light, the flame, which is the godly presence that the person is generating. And what is that fuel that the body burns in order to generate godly light? The mitzvahs. 613 commandments. So that was a metaphor that we introduced in chapter 35. And now, in chapter 51, we're going to go back to that metaphor and develop it more thoroughly as our closing theme in time. Okay. So chapter 51 begins and says like this. We're going to go back to the theme of the wick, the oil, and the flame. But first, we're going to ask a question. What does it mean when we say that the divine presence, the Shekhinah, was more present or was revealed in the Holy of Holies when after all we know that like the Zohar says that no place is devoid of him God is omnipresent or like the prophet says that his glory fills the entire world so if God is filling the entire world what does it mean when we say that he dwelt or his presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Okay, so what he begins to answer is like this. We can answer this question by way of anthropomorphism. Being that we are created in God's image, sometimes we can have insight into godliness by looking at ourselves as a, a metaphor. So in the person, we would not say that one part of the body is more alive than any other part of the body. We wouldn't say the head is more alive than the toe. The entire body is alive, and it's alive because of the soul. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, but the, the, okay, this is not the metaphor of the, that you're thinking of, of one body representing the wholeness of the Jewish people. It's a different metaphor. The metaphor here is about the cosmos. It's like equally alive. The, the point is, any body part that you do have equally is alive as any other body part that you have. They all are alive. And why are they all alive? Why is your whole body alive? Because of the soul, the presence of the soul. So the soul is no more present in one part of the body than the other. It's only that the soul becomes manifest in different ways depending on the different body parts. So when the life force enters the eye, it's manifest as the power of vision. And when the life force enters the ear, it's manifest as the power of hearing. And when, it, when the, that same life force enters the feet, it's manifest as the power of mobility. But it's the same life force all over the body. And where does this life force emanate from? Brain. From the brain, which is, no pun intended, the headquarters for the soul. So this is our metaphor to understand what it means that the Shekhinah, God's presence, dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and yet God is everywhere. What does it mean? It means the Holy of Holies is sort of like the brain. The Holy of Holies is like the brain. The life force emanates from the brain to the whole body which is why the entire, everything that goes on in the entire body is felt by the brain, and the brain controls the entire body. So 
The brain is aware of what's going on in the toenail. Not that the toenail is aware of what's going on in the brain. And the brain conducts all of the various different organs. The will emanates from the brain. The will to guide and direct all of the body parts comes from the brain. So too, God is equally present in the entire world. But there's a brain, there's a place, a holy of holies, which is the contact point where that divine energy enters the world and from whence it emanates outward and is manifest in various different ways according to the various different uh, beings that it's animating. By the way, as an aside, he mentions here that this is why we say, this is a really important concept in Tanya, as you know, the brain rules, rules over the heart. Remember the concept of the brain rules over the heart. This explains to us why that is so. Because the soul is emanating from the brain to the body, Therefore, the brain has a superiority over all of the body, including even the heart. But, but how about the soul? Hmm? Not the soul, though, right? They work together. The brain is the seat of the soul. Right. But when you, when you said it has control over the heart, you weren't referencing the heart as the soul, right? No, no. right. The brain. The brain controls the heart. The, the, the brain controls the heart. The heart, the desires. The brain innately controls the heart. Like we spoke about like at length, that it either means, like we introduced in chapter 12, that the, that the brain can curtail or curb the desires of the heart and, and sidestep the desires of the heart and do an action that the heart doesn't want to do. Or even more than that, that through meditation, the brain can choose to focus on a thought, this was in chapter 16 and 17, and then again in 41 through 50, and through meditating on a thought, the brain can actually choose feelings that the heart will feel. And why is that all possible? Because the brain rules over the heart. And why does the brain rule over the heart? Because the brain is the holy of holies, so to speak, of the, of the body. It is the contact point from which the soul emanates to the rest of the body. Yeah? So when it says that Hashem reads the soul into our nostrils and into our mouth. What is the nostril and the mouth represent? With the metaphor of the Holy Yeah, how do we reconcile that with the metaphor that we cited in chapter 2 of breathing the soul into the nostrils? Um, That's how it was introduced. But that's a different thing. That's how it was introduced initially. But what we're talking about now is when a person is up and running, what is the dominant organ? The brain, because it controls the rest of the body. And yet, we're not saying that it's more alive than the rest of the body. And that's the, that's the main point here. That there is a holy of holies. There's a concept of a place that is the epicenter for all the life of the entire world. And yet, we're not saying that God is more present in that place just like we're not saying that the brain is more alive than the toe. They're both equally alive. There's just different degrees or levels of the manifestation of that power of the soul. One being the epicenter from whence everything emanates forth, and the other being a recipient. So the power is what's important, right? Because the power is much stronger in the brain. So I, uh, you know, think about it. Think about it like this: that if you have the electricity flowing through the wall, and then you know, on your kitchen counter, you have you have a power strip, and you can plug in all different appliances. You have your Cuisinart and your blender, and your toaster and your bread maker, and they all plug into the same power strip. So imagine that the brain is like that power strip, and then all the different appliances are then going to manifest that power appropriate to the way that appliance is built. Okay, but at any rate, the point is like this, and, and, and that's, that's chapter 51. That's chapter 51. The point is 
that there's a relationship between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world that is akin to the relationship between the brain and the rest of the body. Okay. So far so good? Yeah. Okay. Chapter 52. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, chapter 52. <laughs> Have mercy. Okay, chapter 52. <laughs> chapter 52. The brain, the brain is Chabad, Chochmah Bin Adas. We learned these terms, initially we learned these terms in chapter 3 when we were talking about the soul powers. And we spoke about the three intellectual faculties, Chochmah Bin Adas. And we mentioned that those are also spheroids. They're soul powers, meaning they are the structure of the soul. But they're also, the reason they are within, they are embedded in the structure of the soul is because they are, they derive from the, from a, from the archetype, the divine archetype. The, 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 the worlds, every world is built from ten dimensions, which are the ten spheres. And Chochmah Bina Das, the three intellectual spheres, are the intellectual building blocks of each world. Now, from that brain, that brain of each world, the intellectual spheroids of each world, are go are, is going to emanate outward the life force for that entire world. But <clears throat> that brain is actually receiving from something above it. The, 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 the word Shekhinah is from the word Shekhenes, which means indwelling. Shekhinah means the godly energy as it dwells within the world. It's also called uh, the mother in Kabbalah. It's called the mother because it gives birth to it, it nurtures the world. The energy of the Shekhinah, or of the mother, or in Sphiros it's called Malchus, which is the lowest of all the Sphiros, not lowest, meaning that it's inferior, but actually that it is the culmination of all the previous Sphiros, because it is the one that gives birth to and delivers everything that happened before it and passes it on to the next realm of existence. So in each world, what we have is the Shrina of the previous world becomes clothed in the Chachma Bin Adas of the next world. You follow this? The Shrina of the previous world, meaning the higher world, gives birth to and is manifest in and enclosed within the Chachma Bin Adas, the intellectual spheres of the subsequent lower world. So the Shechina in Atzilos, which we call Malchus Atzilos, is then enclosed in Chochma Bina Das of Bria. So in each world, Chochma Bina Das, the intellectual spheres of each world, are the home within which the Shekhinah can manifest and then spread out to the rest of the whole world. What is the Chochmah Bin Adas in each world? It is the Torah as the Torah is understood in that realm. Torah is not just in, in, in this world. To the contrary, Torah began in the spiritual worlds and was given down to this world. And in each world, the Torah exists as the wisdom, as the, the truth 
of that world. And the Torah, as it exists in each world, is the Holy of Holies, within which the Shekhinah from the previous world is able to invest itself and then emanate out to enliven that whole world. So basically what we're saying is like this. The Shekhinah of one world invests itself in the Chochmah Bin Adas, which is the Torah of the next world, and that is the Holy of Holies of that world. And then from that Holy of Holies of that world, the life force spreads out, and then culminates in the Shekhinah of now this, this second world we're talking about, and then it passes to, the, to a third world. And the Shekhinah of the second world becomes the Chochmah Bin Adas, the Torah of that third world, which is the Holy of Holies in that world. There are four worlds totally. And that's the, you know, Atzilos, Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. And that's the system by which the divine energy gets passed down from the highest realm to the lowest realm. So far, so good? We doing okay? The four worlds, Atzilos, Bria, Yitzira, Asiya. And they're just, we've discussed this before, the idea of worlds. Each world is a system of reality. The word world is Oilam, which is from the Shoirish Ayin Lamed Mem, which means Helen, concealment. And each world is a greater concealment. Imagine translucent curtains on the window, eventually creating opacity. So we live in the, or we live in all the worlds simultaneously, but our senses, our bodily senses are tuned into the lowest world. So we experience concealment upon concealment upon concealment. But the point is that how does the divine energy enter the world? It enters from the Shina of the previous world, higher world, entering into the Torah of this world, the system or the wisdom or the truths of reality is the Torah of this world, and that's called the Holy of Holies, the epicenter or the contact point or the, uh, or the, 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 the headquarters for divine energy in, in, in any given world. Okay, so we're going to explain right now. Chapter 53. In the time when the first temple stood, what happened is the Shekhinah of Atsilos, Malchus of Atsilos, the lowest sphere, meaning the culminating sphere of Atsilos, of the highest world. Atsilos is the highest world. Bypassed Bria and Yitzira, it bypassed those worlds, and it entered straight into Asiya, the world of action, where the physical plane exists, and was manifest in the Holy of Holies, the physical Holy of Holies, in the physical temple, in the physical location of Jerusalem. So the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the first temple, was acting as the receptacle for the Shekhinah of Atzilos, and from there, from the Holy of Holies in the physical world, that power of the Shekhinah of Atzilos was spreading out to the entire world, physical world. Talmud says that in the second temple, the Shekhinah did not rest. What does that mean, the Shekhinah did not rest in the second temple? It means not to the same degree that it was manifest in the first temple. doesn't mean there was no Shekhinah in the Holy of Holies. It was still a Holy of Holies, but it was a different level of manifestation. In the second temple, what happened is that 
Malchus Vatsilos invested itself in the Chabad, in the Torah of Bria, and then culminated down to the Malchus of the Shechina of Bria, and invested itself into the Chabad or the Torah of Yitzira, and culminated all the way down to the, the, the Shechina or the Malchus of Yitzira, and then invested itself into the Chabad or the Torah of Asiya, which was represented by the Holy of Holies in the physical temple in the second temple. <clears throat> okay, so what's different, what's the same? What's the same is that the Holy of Holies is acting as a contact point to receive the Shekhinah. And the Holy of Holies can function that way because it is Chabad, it is Torah. How is, how is the Holy of Holies Chabad and how is it Torah? Because the Holy of Holies is the house of the Ark with the tablets. Oh, it's not that it's the house of the Shekhinah. It's the, it is able to house the Shekhinah because it is the house of the, the Torah. The Torah is in the Holy of Holies. The Ark with the tablets. That, that, that's the idea. That the Torah in each world is able to be or to serve as a, a garment for Shekhinah. That's what's the same about the Holy of Holies in the first temple and the second temple. The difference is the degree of Shekhinah that's being housed within the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> in the first temple, the very highest level of Shekhinah, Shekhinah of Atsilos, was taking the uh, express train, and it was passing all the stops, and being manifest in the physical Holy of Holies, and emanating out from there to the whole world. And then in the second temple, it was taking the local train and doing all the stops in each world, and then being manifest in the physical Holy of Holies in the second temple, and then from there emanating out to the whole world. Yeah? But uh, how did it affect the Jews living differently from the first temple and those who lived in the second? How did it affect the Jews in both eras? Yes. The level of revelation. Obviously, if... If you're living in a physical world where the godly energy has not been mitigated by passing through different levels of concealment, each world being a level of concealment, then you're going to get a much more raw product. And I mean that in a, in, a, in a positive sense, that the godliness is going to be more revealed, which is why it was a much more miraculous time. Whereas if each level is diminishing and concealing that energy, so you're going to have a world that operates in more of a natural way, where, where godliness is more concealed. Thank you. Okay. Now, let's ask another question. You ask the difference between people living in the times of the first temple, people living in the times of the second temple. Let's ask now the next question, the next logical question. What's the difference between both of those eras and, yes. and now, right? And now that we don't have a holy of holies because the temple was destroyed. So are we supposed to make ourselves? So if you remember back to chapter was it 33 34 we spoke about the idea of making yourself a home for the shina. And we even we spoke about the idea of what does Hashem have in this world now since the temple was destroyed? He has the place where his will is studied. His will being manifest in halacha, in his instructions for how to live. So now that we don't have the Holy of Holies as it was in the first temple or even in the second temple, what do we have? What we have is the Shekhinah Avatzilas goes into Chabad of Bria, and then the Shekhinah of Bria goes into the Chabad of Yitzira, and the Shekhinah of Yitzira goes into the Chabad of Asiya. And then it even goes into the Malchus Asiya, that's the lowest level. The lowest sphere of the lowest world. And from there, we receive the Shekhinah. What does that mean in practical terms? It means that our contact point with divine revelation is through action. 
way that we connect to Shechina is as the Shechina is manifest through the behaviors of mitzvahs, physically performing mitzvahs. I think yeah. you just answered that question mm -hmm. about the nostril, the blowing of the nose. Mm -hmm. That's action. Could be. I don't know. I don't want to conjecture. Doesn't okay. this lead back to what we discussed about if you do a mitzvah out of instinct or out of, with kavana, what world it goes to? You're talking about chapters 38 through 40 right now about what level your mitzvah goes to depending on the kavana. It's a somewhat different idea. The idea here is like this. We're now going to appreciate the metaphor. Remember, the whole point here was to get back to a, a further elucidation of the metaphor from chapter 35, originally from the Zohar, the wick, the oil, and the flame. We're now going to better understand and appreciate the metaphor of the wick, the oil, and the flame. The oil, shemen, which is shemen zayas, olive oil, is chachma. Oil is always compared to chachma. One reason, just a simple reason, is that oil always floats to the top. And chachma is the top, is the first of the spheroids. But at any rate, Chochmah is represented by oil, by Shemin. Or like in the Hanukkah story, the oil represented the attempt to preserve the purity of wisdom, not to allow it to be defiled by secular Greek wisdom. So oil is wisdom. Chochmah. How do we relate to Chochmah? We relate to it as it informs our behaviors. In other words, not just that there's a divine will, but there's a divine will for us in our day-to-day -day lives. Not just that Hashem has a plan and He has understanding and He obviously as the designer of reality, He he understands reality, but that that vision is supposed to be implemented in our day-to-day -day behaviors. So what is our experience of the way that godliness enters the world? Our experience of it is through behavior ourselves to his will and actually physically performing mitzvahs and and in that sense we function as a holy of holies we actually function as a holy of holies we function as a contact point for the divine presence to enter the world and to emanate out from us to the rest of the world but the way that we function as that contact point is through doing mitzvahs. And this is the metaphor of the wick and the oil and the flame. You have the wick, you have the body. You have the oil, the fuel, which is the mitzvahs that you do with your body. And as you do those mitzvahs, you generate light. You become the light source to illuminate the whole world. So if you want the world to be more godly, if you want the world to be illuminated, then you act as a holy of holies. You act as a place for the divine presence to rest and to emanate out from. And how do you do it? Through behavior. But there's something more to this metaphor. In addition to the fact that it describes how 
behavior becomes the Holy of Holies. There's another idea, and it's inherent to the metaphor of the burning of the fuel through the intermediary of the wick. And that is the idea of burning as consumption or as transformation. You know that light and energy, uh, that, that matter and energy are not created or destroyed. And when something burns, it's just the conversion of matter into energy. So the metaphor helps us to understand the transformation that's occurring. Where's the light coming from? The light is coming from a transformation of matter into energy. Or like Viktor Frankl said, in Man's Search for Meaning, that which is to give light must endure burning. That which is to give light must endure burning. So what are we burning? There are two, there are two levels on which this burning read conversion or transformation can occur. One level is the level of the tzaddik. The tzaddik can transform his insides. Remember we spoke about your insides back in chapter 3 as opposed to your outsides in chapter 4. Remember chapter 3 we spoke about your insides, that's who you are, that's your perceptions and your emotional reactions. And we spoke about, in chapter 4, your outsides. Those are your modes of expression, your behaviors, your thought, speech, and action. So a tzaddik can transform that inner self. The Bainini can't transform the inner self. The Bainini is constantly struggling on that level. The Bainini is always conflicted on that level. Bainini doesn't transform his emotions, he struggles with his emotions. But what does the Bainini transform? His behaviors. He can transform his behaviors. So what does he do? He takes his behaviors, meaning the way that his body behaves, and the way that his body uses the energy of the animal soul, which is unholy energy and transforms that into the light of the Shekhinah that's emanating out into the world. There's a, there's a story that's told when the Baal Shem Tov once saw the person with whom he's going to uh, share his compartment in the world to come. And he glimpsed that it was a very simple man. He wanted to meet him in this world. So it was arranged the Baal Shem Tov should meet this man and he was a very, very simple Jew. This is like the first day of yeshiva when you meet your roommate, but this is forever. So he wanted to find out who this guy is. He met him and he was a very simple Jew. And all that was really notable about him was that he was really, 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 really heavy. Heavy, fat, corpulent. And there was a reason why he was so fat. He was always eating. He was constantly eating. From the moment the Baal Shem Tov showed up, the guy didn't stop eating. And finally, the Baal Shem Tov asked him, what's with the food? So the guy, he was a simple Jew, he started to tell his story. And he said, well, you know, my father was a porush. Porush means an ascetic. And he lived in shul. He never came home. He lived in shul. And he, he, he subsided on a crust of bread and lukewarm water. And one night, the Cossacks came to town and they were drunk and they were lawless and bloodthirsty. And they were looking to uh, 
kill an innocent Jew. But they couldn't get their hands on anybody because everybody had ran inside. Everyone had run inside and uh, locked the doors. But my father was totally oblivious to this. And he was sitting in the shul, which was open. And they came in and they grabbed him. And they dragged him out to the town square. And they tied him to the stake. And they set fire to him. And because he lived the way that he did, barely eating, never really taking care of himself, he was so frail that when they lit fire to him, he was reduced to ashes in a manner, in a, in a, in a, in a matter of, of seconds. Just like he burnt very quickly. So this simple Jew who's constantly eating looks at the Balshamtav and says, when they come for me, I'm going to burn for a good long time. What does that mean? By the way, this is this goes into the category of don't try that at home. <laughs> this works because he was a simple Jew. He really meant it. He really meant it. But what's the principle here? His physicality to him was nothing more than potential spirituality. So he saw his girth, his, his fat, as fuel. It was just fuel, ultimately to be transformed into the flames of Kiddush Hashem. Well, think about this maybe on a less dramatic scale, but the idea is that your body and your animal soul are potential fuel. And all you have to do is add them to the flame and they become transformed into godly light. So you see what's happening now. What's happening for the Benini here at the close of Tanya is that we've totally done a 180. From the very beginning, when you first realized you had two souls, you had this godly soul that only wants to become one with the infinite, and you have this animal soul that is only concerned for its own perpetuation, and you thought that this conflict was a bad thing. And now we tell you to the contrary. It's not a bad thing. The presence of the body and its drive, which we call the animal soul, is not an obstacle to your service of Hashem. It is the very fuel for your service of Hashem. If you use it as such, if you allow it to become transformed. And how do you transform it? Very simple. Very simple. By doing mitzvahs through the behaviors that consume the energy of the body, which after all, as you remember from chapter 37, you get that energy from your body or you replenish it from what you eat and from all the resources that you use. And through every physical mitzvah that you're doing, you are transforming unholy energy into holy energy. So where is the godly light in your life coming from? It's coming from repurposing, transforming, converting the unholy body and animal soul. I'll tell you another story. I've told this story many, many times all over the world, and I never again met the guy who it happened to. There was one night in Crown Heights, probably 20 years ago, I met a guy in a sukkah, and he told a story about how he ended up in yeshiva. He graduated college, pre-law, and he had a summer between college and law school. And he went to yeshiva in Israel, in Jerusalem, because he figured that before he studies American law, he's going to study Jewish law. 
And he went there with the with the idea that he's going to study all of Jewish law in a, in a summer. Well, he said that pretty quickly he realized that's not possible. But he did develop a passion for studying Jewish law, studying Talmud, and uh, he was a very bright guy, so he was doing well academically. But uh, here's the thing, and this might surprise you. Being that he came from a secular background, and this was his first yeshiva experience, he wasn't yet Torah observant. So the entire summer, he had not yet put on tefillin. He was a bright guy, he was sitting in yeshiva, he was studying Talmud with commentaries, and he had not put on tefillin. Okay. Toward the end of the summer, he realized that there's a lot more to yeshiva than he had thought, and that maybe he needs to come back to yeshiva. So he, he decided like this. I'm going to go back to school, <coughs> at least for a year, law school, but I'm, I, I have to make a decision now. Am I going to go back to law school and then come back to yeshiva, or am I going to graduate from yeshiva? Am I done with this? So he, he decided like this. He said, look, studying Torah is supposed to be holy. That's what makes it different than studying American law. So if I have a spiritual experience, then I'll know that this is different and, th and that this is, this is the real thing. So for his remaining time in yeshiva, he studied and studied and studied, and he really tried to have that spiritual experience through the insights in his studies. And he thought maybe, maybe an inspiration, an epiphany would come, but nothing. He just felt normal. He had a respect for Torah, but he didn't have that spiritual experience. He didn't feel that power greater than himself moving through him. And uh, he came to the last day of yeshiva, and he said goodbye, and he packed up his stuff, and he went down to the central bus station to go to the airport. And you know how, first of all, if, you're, if you have a Jewish mother, you know how she makes you pack when you go to yeshiva. So he had his windbreaker and his sweater, and he had his... All, he had his duffel bag, and he had his backpack, and he had his camera, and he had all of this on him in late August in Jerusalem, when it's very hot out, and he's walking, remember the Michelin man, the tire man, he's walking like this, sort of waddling to the bus station, with all this stuff, these layers, and, and all this stuff hanging from him, and all of a sudden, some kid, some teenager, some Lubavitcher Bachar goes over to him and says, excuse me, would you like to put on tefillin? Now, he hadn't put on tefillin all summer. I don't think he'd ever put on tefillin. And you know how it goes. Before he could even really answer, it was already happening. But here was the thing. He had, he had, on, he had on all of his layers. So at first he tried to roll up his sleeve, but then he couldn't really get it. So he tried to take off his jacket, but he had the strap from the backpack. So he moved that, but there was a strap from the camera. So he was trying to move that, but then it got tangled up with the strap from the duffel bag. And he is moving around, and he's trying to get his arm out of his sleeve, and it's hot, and he's covered in layers, and he's carrying all this extra weight, and he's moving around, he's maneuvering, and he says, by the time this guy has me wrapped up, I'm gushing buckets of sweat. And he says, I, I say Shema, the tefillin is being unraveled from my arm. It's over. I'm standing there sweating, flushed face. And I realize I just had my spiritual experience. What is the spiritual experience, the true spiritual experience, is that transformation of matter into energy of body into godly light that occurs when we literally burn calories for God. 
through the performance of a physical mitzvah. And this is where Tanya takes us. After all of our journey, where do we end up? We end up with this idea. That we are the Holy of Holies. And that essential to that formula is the physical body and its energy known as the animal soul. And that that's not our problem, that's all part of our solution. What you thought you had to learn how to cut out of your life, or at least how to avoid, you're now being told is, is essential to your service of God. You want the world to be a godly place, you want to emanate godly light, engage the body, use it as fuel for the flame. And this is how Tanya ends, or the first volume of Tanya, the first 53 chapters. The last line of Tanya, the last line of the 53rd chapter is the verse, Hashem Alekecha, the Lord your God, Eish Eichlahu, is a consuming fire. What does it mean, the Lord your God is a consuming fire? That's not fire and brimstone. It's not meant to scare you. It's revealing to us the formula. God is a consuming fire. Take your physicality. Take your unholiness. Don't discard it. Don't run from it. And certainly don't bemoan the fact that you have it. And use that as fuel for the godly flame and create a world with more godly light. Okay, the official, uh, we'll do the official CM uh, later on, but that's, okay, all right.